Welcome back to the 184th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including, now that enough time has passed, we got some analysis on the election that happened last Tuesday, and we're going to do most of the states in that one. A interesting article talking about Laura Ingram and her battle with Ron McDaniel after the debate on Wednesday. And then our final article talking about the dance that Biden and the New York Times are doing and how it is kind of similar to what happened in 2016 with Hillary. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. Do the Republicans need to change their tactics moving forward? You know, if so, what is the right approach? What are they going to have to do? Because obviously they got trounced in this one, or at least they could have had a lot better of a showing, and they definitely did not. And maybe it's just because the Democrats have found their stride, they found their message, they found what resonates But then how do the Republicans change the narrative? That's what the Daily Debate is. Throw down in the comment section. Love to hear what everybody's thoughts are. All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from Real Clear Politics. Post-election analysis, Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and Mississippi. And we are going to focus on Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. Because, to be honest, Mississippi went the way that most people thought it was going to go. We know that Mr. Reeves has had some issues with possible corruption scandals that not necessarily talked about too much. It obviously didn't affect the election too much. You know, he's going up against the Presley and his fame is one thing, but it wasn't enough to get him over the line. So I didn't think that one was too interesting to go into. But the author breaks it down by election and I grabbed little excerpts from each one that I thought were important to talk about that kind of highlight some of the thinking of some of the people in those states. And considering I live in Kentucky and Virginia is my home state, obviously I am biased, but I threw Ohio in there because that's a really huge one. And it is on an issue that has been resonating with one side of the aisle more than the other, or at least getting their voters out there, which is the right to life. But we'll hop into all those details in the second part. So let's jump to our first quote that comes from the Virginia analysis section. Probably the most prominent elections on the ballot last night were the Virginian legislative elections, which let's let's pause there. Really? You're telling me that the Kentucky governor election wasn't more important? Let's be clear. This author is also a person who was intimately involved in the creation of the Virginia districts, or at least he makes it sound that way. So maybe he cares a lot about Virginia, and that's why he's a little bit biased. But I, I would say that Kentucky and Ohio were pretty big elections. I mean, let's be clear, Virginia was important too, but I would say that Ohio spoke a lot. It gave us more of an insight as to where the minds of the people are, and I would say Kentucky was, even though, you know, I said it myself sometimes that I had a hard time believing that Cameron was going to be able to seal the deal, it was still a very important race, and everybody down ballot of Cameron won, so obviously there's something to be read in there, and I wanted to be careful when I, if I would agree with the author that it was oh, the most prominent election. I mean, it wasn't people's faces because it was a huge statewide election, but I would say a lot of people were focusing on the Kentucky one. But then again, I may be biased because guess what? I live in Kentucky. So maybe. Uh, let's get back to the quote, though. Quote, Democrats have held the Virginia State Senate for some time after drawing themselves an advantage 
when gerrymandering in the 2010 redistricting. Uh, Virginia Republicans did the same for themselves in the legislature's lower body, calling the House of Delegates. Sorry, called the House of Delegates. The state enacted a dis- redistricting commission, and after it deadlocked, the Supreme Court of Virginia appointed two special masters to draw the maps. It was one of those special masters, along with the University of California Irvine political scientist Bernard Gruffman. So there were some court-imposed limits to how much I can discuss. So that's the point where I believe he was directly involved because why else would he be restricted in saying what he could talk about unless he was in on the process? Because the part before doesn't quite explain everything. So that's where I'm kind of leaning on that idea. But that's besides the point. Quote, at the same time, there are two lengthy publicly available memoranda explaining our process, and I can draw upon those here. Our hopes for the maps were that they would reflect Virginia's Democratic lean, but also the fact that Republicans had just swept all three of the Commonwealth's statewide offices. We initially drew without respect to politics, and as it turned out, the districts that we produced were consistent with that goal. These maps are supposed to be hard for the GOP to win a trifecta under, but not impossible in a perfect storm. End quote. So, this is, you're like, wait, Alex, why is this important? Why are, is this in the analysis section? And I think it's extremely important to highlight this, which is the way that the districts were structured is that they were intentionally leaning towards the Democrats. And you say, well, hey, that, that's, that's not fair. And whether you think it's fair or not, the truth is that Virginia, purely because of the population centers and the people that live in those population centers, have been leaning blue for a good amount of time. So the Supreme Court was saying, okay, we have to make sure that we are realistic and we're not giving too much weight to these other locales that are not leaning blue, even though there's a significant significant amount of the population there, a lot more of the population is located in these blue areas. So they have to adjust for that. But then you can also see where the problem with that comes in, which is it, it makes it very, very hard for the GOP in Virginia to actually get a trifecta. It makes it really hard for them to get the Senate, the House of Delegates, and the governorship all at one time. And that, you know, like I said, it may seem unfair. You may want to make it even so both teams could win. But when you have a state that has been trending blue and then you suddenly have a a red snapback, does that instantly mean it's red? No, it just means that part of the message of the red side resonated. That doesn't mean all those people are going back red. So you have to give a slight opportunity like he's talking about where, oh, yes, in the perfect storm, they can actually win all three or they can have major wins in all of them or two of them in years that the governor's not up for election. And then that can actually determine what the trend is moving forward. And then they can redistrict again under the new idea that, oh, well, actually, Virginia is turning a little bit more red, even when we made the process a little bit harder for them. So I can see where the logic for all of this is. It doesn't mean I necessarily agree because, yeah, you should make it as fair as possible. But also I do, as a person who lived in Virginia, I really do understand that the population centers, the more heavily uh, blue areas, they're very, very populous, and they kind of dictate where the state goes. 
And as someone who lived close to one of those, yeah, I could tell you, there are a lot more Democratic voters up there than Republican voters. This is partly because a lot of them go and work in D.C. And in order to keep the bureaucratic system going, uh, you could argue that they're more willing to see expansion of government so they don't lose their job. That can go for Republicans, too. They become like more moderate Republicans, or they're still Republicans in principle, but when it comes down to it, they want the government to stay large so that they can keep their job. They're going to advocate for that because they want to support their kids and everything. Nothing against that. Personal interest, I understand. So, yeah, as someone who lived close to that, I understand the leanings somewhat of the people that live up there. And yes, Virginia is a more blue state in the populous areas. And guess what? The populous areas are going to determine who's going to win in most elections. I mean, I'm sorry to say that the rural vote doesn't matter because it does, but it just isn't as heavily weighted, especially when this redistricting happened. And it was intentionally made so that these Democratic areas could really pull their weight. All right, so let's jump to the next analysis that's about Ohio. Quote, put simply, pro-lifers got walloped in Ohio. The voters overwhelmingly rejected the state's strict abortion ban, and the vote was 57 to 43. At the same time, the state polarized badly. The initiative carried the urban and suburban areas, but was overwhelmingly rejected in rural areas, particularly in western Ohio. As someone who resides in the Buckeye State, uh, I'm sorry, I accused him of being from Virginia earlier. He's actually from the Buckeye State, or he's living in the Buckeye State right now. My bad, author. Quote, I am a bit surprised that the margin wasn't wider. Pro-life ads were non-existent, at least on the media my family consumes. Pro-choice ads hit the themes that would resonate with all but the most hardcore pro-lifers, concentrating on the lack of a rape exception and centering the message on the family. One ad featured a father asking, quote, what if my daughter was raped? While another emphasized that issue one put the abortion decision where it belongs with my family. So you can see that the messages really are really, really strong here. They're really concise. They get directly to the point and they know exactly who they're targeting because no offense to this author, uh, I figure he's more of a Fox News watcher with a little bit of time on the other channels to get a wide perspective. He doesn't give me two hardcore Republican leanings, but this is a Republican uh, or sorry, a more conservative leaning outlet. And he has some, you know, experience. It feels like talking about some of these issues. And if they're running pro-life ads, and this is all an assumption in my mind, just so we're clear, I am making a few leaps here, but he feels a little bit more foxy to me. And if they're running these ads, even on Fox, then yeah, of course, this is going to start to resonate with some people, no doubt. At the end of the day, if you're going to barrage one side of the aisle with, because you already know your Democrats are going to get out there, you'll sparse put one or two little ads in their media coverage and then oh yeah i care about this i'm going to get out there but in order to convert hearts and minds you're going to throw it on the opposing side who might be a little bit more moderate and just throw out ad after ad after ad talking about this resonating and talking about family values too that's one great way to hit the heart of many moderate republicans which is yeah i care about family values i want this to be a decision that isn't done by the state I want the state to stay out of my business, and I want to stay within the family and have this discussion. That's a great way to hit them at home and resonate. I mean, literally and figuratively hit them at home. So at the end of the day, you can see that the Democrats did something amazing here with their tactics. They were smart, and let's be clear, it wasn't just Democrats. It was a lot of, you know, 
uh, nonprofit groups and a lot of different political action groups that were involved here. But they they did something smart. And the question now becomes, are Republicans going to learn from this? Are they going to learn that their messaging is going to get trounced? Or are they going to double down and keep on losing? Who knows? We'll see. Even though this, you know, abortion, it, it was a, an amendment, a constitutional one, but it, it was an issue on the ballot itself, this issue won. Uh, even though it was a little bit far out there and it really allowed almost anything uh, when it comes to not preventing a abortion. So you, for in theory, in theory, it gets rid of parental consent because that can directly stop a child who has been, you know, unintentionally become pregnant. It can actually stop them from getting an abortion. So therefore that is a restriction on getting an abortion and therefore under issue one, that is actually stripped away. Now it has to be implemented by the courts, you know, and the state legislator in Ohio is doing some, I don't want to say funny business, but they're trying to work around to make sure that the court doesn't actually make any judgments on this in order to start enacting some of the policies or saying which policies it applies to. But, you know, it's going to be an interesting one. The reason I was saying all of this is because at the end of the day, the Republican message is off. It is wrong. They are not getting this right. They need to get off of abortion. And the Democrats, they know they have this one locked in the bag. So, Guess what? Republicans, if you know you can't win this one, and I'm not saying you can't, I'm not saying you can. I'm just saying if data has shown that you can't win this one repeatedly, Virginia where you ran on it, Ohio where you ran on it, Kentucky, it was a huge piece of a lot of the advertisement here for Mr. Andy Bashir. If all of these data, including 2022, is coming back and telling you that abortion is not the issue to run on, stop running on abortion. There you go. Because the Democrats... They got their message locked. They know exactly what they're going to say. So that's enough on that one. And I said I would get to Kentucky, so I'll read a really brief, brief quote from the Kentucky one. It's not necessarily illuminating. I could go into it a little bit further, but you know what happened. You know that Daniel Cameron lost to Andy Bashir, And you know, like I just mentioned, that Bashir was pushing hard on very specific messages. He also outspent him. I think it was four to one, if I'm not misremembering the numbers. Hopefully, uh, somebody could correct me if I am wrong on that one. But I'll tell you, anecdotally, I was here and I was getting zero. Maybe actually one Daniel Cameron ad. I was getting a lot of Andy Bashir ads. So their targeted Google ads are, you know, at least Andy's ahead on those, or that's how it appears. All right, so let's jump to the quote. Quote, Republicans had become optimistic that they could win the race as a last-minute Emerson College poll showed Attorney General Daniel Cameron narrowly besting incumbent Governor Andy Bashir. As it turns out, Bashir won re-election by five points, building on his 2019 win over incumbent Matt Bevin. Who, how did Bashir do it? The map shows the swing in vote share from 2019 to 2023 in Kentucky. Notably, the Louisville-Cincinnati areas didn't change that much from 2019 to 2023. The swings came in Metro Lexington, a smaller city that hadn't realigned quite as much as Cincy in Louisville during the 2010s and then Southern Kentucky, end quote. And I mean, hey, this is something. When I was at the event the night of, I was looking at some of the, the maps and I was like, whoa, whoa, okay. So we obviously have, you know, there's a little bit of a sentiment in eastern Kentucky, which is more rural, that Bashir is still the right guy. 
Lexington has still come in heavy for uh, Bashir, which, you know, as a person who's worked in Lexington every once in a while, I can kind of feel it for the most part. It doesn't feel like a liberal town, but it definitely feels like an Austin. It feels like there's a good mix of everybody. Everybody can get along. But the more out there open position is liberal one, the ones that are willing to talk about their uh, problems or talk about their issues. Uh, that definitely feels like Lexington is headed in that direction. So it kind of makes sense to me that the shift happened there and there was more votes for Bashir there. No doubt about it. So that's enough. Um, I've done the Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia. We've gone through the election analysis. Sorry, it's been a little bit longer than I would have liked, but I also did want to spend most of today's episode. So it's not too bad. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from The Daily Caller. Laura Ingram confronts Ronna McDaniel for a dodging question on track record. And when they said track record, it's on Donna McDaniel, sorry, Ronna McDaniel's track record specifically. And the reason that this is even coming into the news, the reason that this is becoming important whatsoever, is because Vivek Ramaswamy called her out at the debate. He directly said, hey, you want to come up here? I'll yield my time. You can uh, you know, retire right here in front of everybody. And it is interesting. You know, I'm falling into this, too, before I point it out, which is how someone can set the narrative so quickly with one of these debates. That's why it's very important, because one speech, one time they bring up a specific issue, they can set the narrative for a while now, or at least they can have the conversation had. And that's why these debates are extremely important. Because, one, voters need to hear what the people on that stage care about, what their policies are going to be. But also, the people on that stage need to highlight certain issues that the voters don't even know about or don't even care about quite yet. I think that's another important part of the exchange that happens on that stage. And I'm not saying about the exchange between the voter and the person up there, even though that does happen. I'm also talking about the exchange between the person up there and the other person up there, because guess what? All it takes is one, you know, perfectly put comment from one of the people to uh, attack somebody else that causes a whole flurry of Google searches. So, oh, wait, really? I didn't know that this person did that. So it is a beautiful, beautiful system to allow a lot of information in a short period of time if it is done correctly. Normally it's not. It's yelling, screaming, canned lines. But when people are willing to go out there, they're willing to be themselves, they're willing to push back, they're actually well-informed, it can be a great system. But it really has turned into an entertainment system. And that's why, I, while I didn't want to necessarily feed into Ramaswamy's speech because at the very beginning he was just going off on everybody, trying to get attention, trying to get Google searches, so on and so forth, he does make a really good point. And then Ronna McDaniel kind of stepped on her own toes afterwards when she was going on interviews and uh, people were asking those questions, and that's what I'm actually responding to, not directly what Vivek was saying. So let's be clear. Quote, the Fox News host Laura Ingram pressed Republican National Committee chairwoman Ron McDaniel, saying she didn't answer her question about her track record at the RNC. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy called for McDaniel's resignation in his opening statement on when, yeah, we already know that, uh, blah, blah, blah. He was calling out the Virginia General Assembly and then also falling short in Kentucky. 
quote, McDaniel attacked Ramaswamy in a Thursday Business Network appearance, claiming he was in need of a headline and accusing him of voting for President Barack Obama. Let's be clear, uh, he has come out and said that it's not true whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if we have his direct voting record, but when asked about it, he said, I can prove it, and then kind of pivoted to another subject. So I'm assuming he's not lying, but maybe he is, probably not, though. Uh, quote, Fox Business Panels rips Ronald McDaniel to a feud with Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy's campaign website states that he voted for a libertarian candidate in 2004, but did not vote in his 20s, which is exactly when he would have had the ability to vote for Mr. Obama. And, you know, it, it's an interesting conversation. We're seeing a little bit of the feud, a little bit of the back and forth between the RNC chairwoman and one of the candidates. I mean, if you're ever going to have a Trump-like moment, this is probably it. Vivek is, you know, he's shooting for the stars. He is aiming for the fences, and he's trying to knock one out. And we'll see if it falls flat or not. I'll be interested to see where this goes because the media coverage has already kind of slowed down on it. He got a lot after Wednesday and Thursday. And we also know that other people have been pushing this for a while and hasn't really gone anywhere. Like Ben Shapiro for a long time has said, hey, you know, I, I like Ronna McDaniel, but at the end of the day, we need someone who gets results and she is not doing it. So it's not like, you know, Mr. Ramaswamy here is the only one commenting on this, but it's not wrong. Do you think the DNC would keep somebody around that kept on losing? No, you want somebody that has a track record of winning. And while, yes, she did a great job while she was the Michigan chair, that doesn't mean that you're going to do a great job on the national level. So there is a little bit more here in McDaniel's response to Ingram's direct questioning in this interview. Quote, I think, and this is her exact words, quote, I think there was a moment missed during the debates by Vivek to talk about the fact that we still have 13 American hostages in Israel. The fact that for the first time ever in history of either parties, we had a Jewish co-sponsor for a debate and we are, well, hold on, let's pause here. Uh, are we playing identity politics? You had a Jewish co-sponsor for a debate? Why, why, why does that matter? I, I don't I don't understand. At the end of the day, if you had Lockheed Martin being a co-sponsor, does that mean that you have to talk about military policy and military spending the entire time? Or maybe Lockheed Martin would want the inverse, where you actually don't spend as much time worrying about how much money you're going to send them. Why is having a pro-Israel or sorry, a pro-Jewish uh, sponsor? Why? Why does that? Why does that matter? Why does having a Jewish sponsor matter at all? Are we playing identity? Oh my gosh! It's the first blank to do blank. Uh, it's the first blank to sponsor blank. Yes, I understand that Democrats have had a hold on the Jewish community for a long time in America, but does that make it a huge deal? And she wants to talk about foreign policy with Israel, and you know that's fine. But Israel can do its own thing while America is worried about its elections here. Just because we have an Israeli or a Jewish sponsor, that doesn't mean that we have to talk about those issues. And also trying to brag about it. Being the first time we're not playing identity politics come on this is such an obvious spin to try to talk about something else and it just it's just frustrating because at the end of the day who cares i don't care who co-sponsors your debate i care that you give a platform for those people to get up there and speak their minds and then when they don't necessarily agree with you if you're the rnz chair back up i'm sorry if you've been directly attacked i understand maybe you should do some reflection see if those criticisms are worthy or not, but you should back up because the people are going to choose, in an ideal world, the people are going to choose 
who is on that ballot going in to the actual election after the primaries. And your opinion about them and your attacks against them shouldn't matter whatsoever. So stop playing these dumb games. And yes, I am hitting my table just a little bit with my hand right now because come on, we're better than this. We are better than this. The Republicans, the Democrats, the political system, they are all tangled up in this. Oh, we were the first to do this. We have this co-sponsor. Oh, we can't have these certain people attacking the establishment. Come on, we're better than this. Let the people speak. If Ramaswamy's message resonates, it resonates. And I'm sorry, McDaniel, put aside your pride, put aside your ego. You don't have to go out there and defend yourself. If you're doing well enough, and you're obviously not, if you're doing well enough that you are getting wins and your reputation speaks for itself, then you don't have to go out there and do this spin job. And it is very evident that because your record is not good, you're going out doing this spin job. You should not be the public face. You should be behind the scenes doing the hard work. That is my opinion. I'm going to stop on this one because, honestly, it's just kind of frustrating. She goes on to say some things that you know most people wouldn't care about, and neither do I. And if you want to read it, you can go to the article yourself at the end of this. All right, let's jump to our final article that comes from the National Memo. Is the New York Times doing to Biden what it did to Hillary in 2016? So you've obviously heard about, seen if you're politically active, some of the polls that came out about Joe Biden and how they do not look good for him whatsoever. Well, you know, now there's some people drawing a connection to what's going on with Hillary, with how the mainstream media has responded to it. And I think it's an interesting analysis, so we're going to read one or two quotes from it. Quote, let's begin with the New York Times-Siena poll just a few days ago. The results show Mr. Biden losing to Mr. Trump, his likeliest Republican rival, by margins of 4 to 10 percentage points among registered voters in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Mr. Biden is ahead only in Wisconsin by 2 percentage points, the poll found. Across the six battlegrounds, all of which Mr. Biden carried in 2020, the president trails by an average of 48 to 44 percent. Boy, does that sound bad. Newspaper and cable news chirons have blared the ugly numbers for Democrats ever since the Times headline headlined that grim news. Who would blame them? News outlets love. I mean just L-O-V-E, love bad news, and it doesn't really matter what it is. The Maui fires in early August, 99 people dead in Lahana in alone. The news showed photos of the burned-out little seaside town for days. End quote. So yes, the news does love bad, bad headlines. If it leads, it leads. That is the, well, that's the saying. And, you know, I even asked somebody about this in college. There was a speaker that came to our campus, and I said, how do we change the mentality that if it bleeds, it leads, that they're always chasing negative information? And she said, oh, yeah, it really has to be a culture change from the bottom up, and, you know, we have to deprioritize certain things, and we have to get people to uh, believe that they need to report more ethically, so on and so forth. That was the gist. It's not exactly what she said, but she basically said it needs to be a bottom-up thing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe that's a good point. Maybe we do need to just have people with really high journalistic standards. And I don't disagree. Maybe we definitely do need that. There's no maybe about it. I don't know why I said maybe. We need that. But also, you have to change the incentive structure from the top down. You have to make it so that it is less about 
the money that they can get from clicks online or from the people buying the head the newspaper because they see the terrible headline. No, you need to make it so that they can get recurring revenue somehow. And I know, I hate recurring revenue. I really do. But if you want to change the incentive structure, you have to change it so that they're going to get their money no matter what, no matter how many people click on that terrible headline. You're going to have to make it so that people actually just trust them and want the information from them, and they're willing to spend the matter money no matter whether the headline's big or small. You know, and there are there is a small subsect of people who believe that and are you know pay that subscription and they read it daily whether it's good or bad. But a majority of the people only really care when it's bad news. So that's besides the point. I'm sorry, but I think we just have to change the incentive structures. But the author's making an even broader point here. Quote: Remember the way the New York Times covered the elections of 2016 in. If Hillary Clinton got a hangnail, it was because she caught it on her emails. Donald Trump was screaming about it at every one of his rallies, which the time was dutifully covering as front-page news. By Election Day, the Times had still not used the word lie even once to describe the daily spew that shot out of him as, it was fr- as if it was from a hot fire hose. So let's pause here, and let's understand what they're saying. They are saying, this author is saying, that, ah, yes, they're covering all of Biden's flaws, just like they covered all of Hillary's flaws, and they're not calling it out, and they're not saying it's a lie. Wait, remind me of the corruption scandal that is alleged against Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and how the media says that there is nothing there. They constantly defend him on that one, how they are constantly saying there's no evidence there, and whether or not you believe there's evidence, the accusations are at least out there, and they're not giving them the the credit they deserve. They're just outright saying, no, it's wrong, which is their prerogative. If they have the evidence that it is 100% wrong, great, get out there. But then to argue that they are not defending Joe Biden enough, that they are not out there like they weren't out there for Hillary, saying, oh, yeah, this is lies, that's not true. They're obviously going out and saying what are lies against Joe Biden, that they believe are lies. So I'm sorry, your little pity party, little small violin BS is not going to work on me. They are defending Biden. It just happens to be that most people don't like Biden. The economy is worse off. He made promises to young people that he hasn't come through on. The black community is feeling really hard hit while they were prospering under Donald Trump. He also is a weak person, so lots of men are not going to vote for a weak person. They'd rather have the strong man than Donald Trump. I'm just sorry to tell you that maybe Joe Biden isn't that popular, just like Hillary Clinton wasn't that popular. The only difference is we've had four years of Joe Biden in office, and we can directly see his terrible policy, where we were kind of just guessing about Hillary Clinton before she got into that White House. But that's enough on that. I'm sorry to go off there at the end. It just it, it frustrates me when you see these sort of things and they're trying to say, oh, they're, they're not out there defending the truth. It's like, well, okay, if you believe this one thing is the truth, which is the corruption scandal, then obviously they are defending it because almost every day that it was brought up by uh, Comer, sorry, Grassley or Johnson, it was shot down saying it was a lie. So no, they are out there defending Biden, out there defending the president, rightly or wrongly, no matter which side you fall on it. So just get off your high horse, dude. All right, let's jump to the daily delight that comes from Cheddar. So this is, you know, it's a really cute one. Elephant interrupts interview. 
you know, some people, they are just born for the spotlight. I know a few of them myself. Uh, one of them goes to Louisville. If you know who you are, if you somehow found this, you know, five years later, you're like, oh, Alex, you, you gave me a shout out. Yes, I gave you a shout out. You are born for the spotlight and you know exactly who you are. During an interview with an elephant keeper in South Africa, the keeper was talking about the baby elephant he looks after, whose name is Chavo, who immediately runs over to the keeper once he hears his name and starts playing with him. And I'll tell you now, it kind of feels like uh, Chavo's a little brother, and he's like, you said my name! And he came over and started playing with him while he was being interviewed. It's honestly really, really adorable. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. With all that said, there is only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.